So let's talk books. Uh, I, I, I noticed that many of you already have a copy of the Screwtape Letters. That's great. Uh, there's no need to get any particular version. Any one you have will do. Um, I've got one that looks like this. Those of you who bought a book tonight, it'll look like this. I've got a really old one that's falling apart that looks like that. Um, but uh, any, anyone will do. If, uh, if, if you, I looked on Amazon. It looks like they're 10 bucks on Amazon. Where the, the church is asking for a $10 donation. Uh, if anybody needs help with that, let me know. We'll, we'll give you a book. That's no problem. Um, it may be easier instead of Amazon. I looked at some shipping times. It may be easier to go to ChristianBook.com, Christian Book Distributors. For years, it was just CBD.com. They had to change their website. Uh, so uh, if you go on there, who knows what you'll get? But uh, but it's now ChristianBook.com, and it's a great website. I. I, I order a lot of uh, Christian books there. And so their shipping times may have been a little bit better, uh, and so if, if that helps. If you are not an internet person and you're like, yo, I, I do not do the internet, I do not do Amazon, I don't do that, just call the church office and we can help. I'm sure we'll order a big batch anyway, and uh, you know they'll, they'll get here. Uh, if not by the next session, then, um, then certainly by the third. And if you, um, if you are a couple and or a family, and everybody's got their own book. If you would be willing to share with somebody who doesn't have a book at all, then uh, let us know that. And uh, yeah, is there, any, is there anybody who does not have a book? Let's just show of hands. Who, who will need a book? Just show of hands, yeah. So I'm counting 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Okay, 12. All right, good deal. And then is there anybody, is there any family that's like, I think we've got one laying around. See me next week or see me tonight. Maybe a, a couple of you. Okay. Um, I think the simplest thing would be going, those of you that are e-readers, Kindle readers, that obviously would be the simplest. That's available immediately if you want to do that. And um, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think Amazon has a thing. If you'll buy the book before it comes, they'll give you the Kindle or at least the first couple chapters for free while you wait. Don't quote me on that, but I think, uh, I vaguely, I may be making that up, but I think I've done that before with something that I, I had to have right away. Uh, that's that. Uh, every night we'll go from 6 to 7. I have to, have to, have to have you out of here no later than 6.59 p.m. Because uh, if not, somebody sent me a great text the other day. They were like, it's cold. You know, it's so cold outside. They're like, cold? How cold? Colder than a nursery worker's stare after a 55-minute sermon. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. I get that. You know, Jackie, remember those days, right? And working with the children. I'm up there in New York preaching and preaching my little heart out. <laughs> trying to keep it together. So, uh, <laughs> so I have to have you out of here by 6.59. So we'll try to spend our time wisely. And uh, uh, let's just uh, uh, go over the syllabus here. You'll see the location I put a blank because I didn't know at that time based on how many. But let's go ahead and mark that down. We'll see you next week at the Fellowship Hall. That's my email and Jackie's email. Uh, Tom Richard 23. 23 is obviously for Michael Jordan. Emails came out when he was cool. And uh, January 4th, tonight, uh, we'll, I'll make some introductory comments. That's what this is. We'll look at the preface and letter one. Then before next week, please read letters two and three. Obviously, if you, if you don't have a book, beg, borrow, or steal. Don't, don't do that. Beg or borrow uh, a copy and see if you can uh, get letters two and three. Uh, January 18th uh, will be a... Uh, view and discuss. We're going to show a video on these beautiful screens. Dr. Jerry Root is a professor. Some of you uh, uh, who are really deep into this book and deep into C.S. Lewis, you'll know that name. 
um, has done some great lectures about the book. They were super helpful. I actually uh, led my 20-something Sunday school class through this, and we used him and got great feedback. Said it was really helpful in, in setting the framework about the book, helping open up understanding. So we'll do video one on Jan 18. Then before the 25th, have basically I'm saying read the letters we're going to discuss that Wednesday. So four, five, six. Then I realized it, you skip down before February 15th, please read letters 9 through 11 and continue this pattern. I think by then everybody's got the hang of it. I didn't feel the need to write that out on every one. On March 29th, there will be no meeting that week uh, for spring break. We're not having any, uh, any meetings here that week, so make a note of that. Then we'll continue on. There's 31 letters, and April 26th will be our last time together. Letter 31 and some closing thoughts. I have two goals for this study. The first is content, and the second is connection. Content and connection. Um, some people think you have to have one or the other, but I'm convinced you can have both. And so let's start with content. Uh, I think that people probably, I know there's a lot of teachers in here, maybe you're the same way. Uh, teachers, I would think, teach, they teach best what they love. You can't help it. What you're passionate about, what you enjoy, it just comes through. And I have loved and taught this little fiction book by C.S. Lewis uh, to groups. I, taught my I brought my, took my first group through screw tape letters when I was in college. And uh, I've lost count, but I think this will be the sixth group that I've taken through uh, the book. And each time I go through it, I learn something new. So I'm really doing this uh, for me to learn and to grow. I love it so much. And here's how I teach. Now, this is very important uh, because there are other Bible studies. So bail now if this doesn't sound enticing at all. A word about how I teach. The and here's, I come by it this way. The best Bible study teacher I ever learned from was a mentor of mine. He was so good, and I just do what he did. His name was Gene Parr. He was a campus minister at a college in uh, Kentucky. And here's what he would do when he had a Bible study. He would read a verse or two of Scripture. He would pause. He would lean back, and he would say, okay. He would read it out loud to us and then say, okay. Any thoughts about that? Questions about that? Usually it would be, you know, what? What do you think this means, right? And then he loved C.S. Lewis. So he would take us through C.S. Lewis. He would read, like we would do mere Christianity this way. He would read a paragraph, read it out loud to us. We'd all read it, but he read it to us. He read mere Christianity. He'd get to the, you know, get to the end of a paragraph or sometimes a sentence and go, okay. And usually with Lewis, it was like, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> and we would talk about it. And we would keep, sometimes it would be like, okay, everybody got it. We got it. We'd go on. And other times that would lead to great discussion. And we would discuss for a while. Then we'd go right back and read to the next little bit. So, you know, I, sometimes, like I said, it, it would be a lot of discussion, sometimes not much, but when the time was up, we just stopped where we were, picked up next time. Now, here's why I say that. So, so what that means is, yes, I, I'm going to read aloud these passages to you. Uh, that may feel pedantic to some people, but that's okay, because there's other Bible studies that are great, and you can discover that now, and uh, that's okay, and uh, better to discover it now. Uh, but that, that, that's how I learned this material, and that's how I've taught it, and that's what I think works best. So I'll read a little bit, I'll comment on what I think needs commenting, and from time to time we'll ask uh, for some thoughts, and then we'll pick right back up and, and move right along. 
Jackie laughed when she saw the syllabus. She's like, three letters in one night. It'll never happen. But I'm giving myself until January 25th before I have to do that. So we're working up to it. Um, sometimes I do, I do uh, uh, well, you guys have heard me preach. Sometimes I get a little sidetracked. Okay. A word about what to expect. This is not, as soon as Stephen got me, as soon as I said syllabus, I regretted it. It's not... That's a, a word for college court. You're not getting any college credit for this. You're not getting, uh, uh, sorry. Um, some of you are being paid per chapter, I understand, but that's, that's yeah, that's right. Um, so this is not a college class on C.S. Lewis. I don't, I don't pretend to be a graduate level professor on literature. Let me tell you what you're here tonight. What you're here, what, 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 what you're a part of. Um, so if you're like, oh, you know, I'm a Lewis fan, I'm all into this, I know so much about it. You, you know more about Lewis than I do, but freely admit. But, but, but here's what you're seeing. This is a pastor who loves his congregation and wants to feed his flock. That's what you're seeing. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I want to be one small part of the education ministry to build up the people of God. And I can only teach, like I said, I can only teach the way I was taught. After all these years, it's all I know. To read it, even on Sunday, it's sort of what I do, right? I read the scripture, I talk about it. It'll be the same thing here. And let me say one last word about the content. As much as I love Lewis, I really don't care if you leave this study. On April 26th, I really don't care so much if you leave with more love for C.S. Lewis. I want you to leave with more love for God. Right? That's why I'm here. Lewis is just a servant of God. All of us, we're just servants of God. And he has helped many of us see more of God. And so if it helps you, great. If not, it's okay. There's other books we can read next time, right? But it's not like I'm this C.S. Lewis. You've got to love him, and you've got to you know, love him so much and become a fan and all that. Uh, love God <laughs> and become a follower of God. And if Lewis helps along the way, then that's my goal. So that, that's the content. As far as the connection, it won't happen overnight, but I'll give you one minute and 40 seconds. I've got a clock. Uh, to at least introduce yourself around the table. Let's start with a little connection. Make sure everybody knows each other. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Just let it time out. Just let the time go. Just play the clock. Introverts are playing the clock right now. I love it. <laughs> All right, now that, to, to my introverts in the room, let me say this. That is as much interaction as you'll be required from now until April 26th. Congratulations, you did it. If you want to slip in anonymously and just be a part of the study and slip out, you, that's A-OK. -okay. But I hope, I hope that over time, uh, you'll see 
and uh, begin connecting. Hey, I do have a ground rule. I do have a rule. People are like, you know, are, are there any rules, anything I need to know? I do have one rule. And my one rule is this. You should never, never, never be afraid to ask a question if you don't know something. Uh, uh, you know, a study like this, you know, Lewis is just so smart. It's intimidating when you come to a book like this, or at least it can be. So in my opinion, you need to know this about me. I love you and I respect you no matter what. That is not up for debate. In my opinion, there is no such thing as a dumb question. There's just not. Because how are and, and, if, and if you ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I'm going to say, I don't know. Some people are like, I'll say, I don't know, but I'll find out. I don't know if I'll find out. I don't know if it's worth it. I'm just telling you, I don't know. Right? You Google. Now, so, so that's my starting point. I'll, everybody take a deep breath. Why would you ever, if you felt that you'd be mocked for not knowing something, why would you ever know something? And how are you going to know something unless you ask? But you won't ask if you're expected to already know. It becomes a catch-22. So, no, it, there's no such thing. Part of this comes from my own personal background. I remember it like it was yesterday, being so ashamed and embarrassed. It was, I was in English. I was a literature major in college. And the teacher, uh, we were supposed to read this Jane Austen novel, read the passage. And the, the professor said, if you ever come to a word you don't know, you have to look it up. And he would quiz you to make sure you looked it up. And he asked and around, and, and, and he would just put you right on the spot. He'd point at you and say, what does it mean? What does this mean? And I hadn't looked up all the words, and so he uh, had me dead to rights and just but wouldn't let it go in front of everybody. You mean you don't know what it means? Tom Richter, you don't know what this word means. I mean, just like wouldn't let it go. It goes on. I'm, I'm serious. It, it felt to me like an hour. It was probably 40 seconds. But uh, he was my advisor, so I don't know if like, I, I, it was like personal insult that his student didn't know this. I said, you don't know. And I'll never forget it. And the word that I didn't know was the word condescend <laughs> so the irony of being condescended to about that word I've and so I thought if I'm ever in a position where I'm teaching group people the one thing I'm gonna make sure they know is you never have to be ashamed for not knowing something that's how you learn ask questions and open up I am a fellow learner there's lots of things I don't know about Lewis, about this book. I'll say it again, I learn something new every time. So with that, what do we have in this book? The book is called The Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, wrote it in 1941. That obviously puts him as a Brit. He's in England, in the heart of World War II. It is a work of fiction. That's important. <laughs> the story is told through a collection of letters Lewis imagines that a senior demon, a tempter, named Screwtape, has taken on an apprentice. It happens to be his nephew. He's like a rookie demon, and his name is Wormwood. Lewis was asked how he came up with these names, Screwtape and Wormwood, and he goes, I just tried to think of nasty-sounding names. Isn't that good? So he's a junior devil, and Wormwood has just been given his first assignment, a young man. Throughout the book, they call him... The patient. So they'll say things like, you know, try to try to get the patient to do this. Try to get your patient to do this. See if your man can do that. But the point is, Wormwood's been assigned this young man. He's kind of the hero of the book. His goal, Wormwood's goal, is to corrupt the young man and secure his soul for all eternity. Screw Uncle Screwtape is trying to guide this process. Again, the story takes place in England during the tumultuous years of World War II. And the book opens with the man contemplating becoming a Christian. 
Now, spoiler alert, it's not really much of a spoiler. By the very second letter, he becomes a Christian. So I'm not, hopefully I'm not giving away too much. But the remainder of the book is really about his life as a Christian. So the book mainly is about a demon who's trying to completely trip up a young adult who wants to live as a Christian. The patient goes under spiritual attack. Like most adults, he is influenced, we're going to see, by his culture, his materialist friends, and the media. Does this sound modern? Along the way, he wrestles with problems at church. Can you imagine? Problems at work. Along the way, we're going to see the young man falls in love. And there's an entire letter on relationships. There's stuff in here about pride about dealing with petty annoyances. Particularly, his mother gets on his nerves. And there's a lot of stuff in here about fear and anxiety. Now, think about that for a second. The book was written in 1941. What amazes a lot of people, not just me, about Lewis's prescience is how he still speaks with such a modern voice to such modern issues. You almost look and you go, how did he know? Obviously, the point is all this good. This is really a book about spiritual formation, how to live life as a Christian. And throughout the book, it will take some getting used to. Hopefully, after a few letters, you'll get used to it. It's like a photograph in negative. For those of you old enough to remember film, film was this thing. It has something to do with VHS tapes and 8-tracks and voicemails. Anyway, it was a thing. But this idea, you know, right, you, you see the photo in negative. And so black is white and white is black. And so because it's, it's told from a perspective of a devil in hell, obviously it's opposite. His black is our white. His up is our down. What he calls good, we would think of as bad. So, for example, he calls Satan our father below, right, as opposed to our father in heaven. Uh, and what does he call God? What we would call God? He calls him simply the enemy with a capital E. So it'll say things like, you know, the enemy wants your patient to pray. We want him to do anything anything but that. And so uh, that, that's probably the most important thing you can get away from this introduction is that, that that's really important. Like it's, it's written from the perspective of a devil trying to trip up a Christian. <laughs> if you were to somehow miss that, that would be, uh, that would be a rough semester. Um, and, and you think uh, like that would never happen. In the preface to the 1982 edition, they tell a story that uh, Lewis writes that when the book was, you know, it was originally published as a series of newspaper articles in The Guardian, which no longer exists, and not everyone got that. One country clergyman wrote an angry letter to the editor that he would be withdrawing his subscription because, quote, much of the advice given in these letters seemed to him not only erroneous, but positively diabolical. <laughs> yeah, it is. And so the book is demonic advice about how to trip up a Christian. So you'll, you'll keep reading, like, mix him up on this, encourage pride here. When this happens, see if you can tempt him to do this or that. And that's what I love most of all, is that every time I read this book, every time I go back through it, I have, there's a point where I almost every time put the book down and I go, okay, how did Lewis know this about my life? Like, is he reading my mail? Like, how did he know I, I'm tempted by that same thing? Or how does he, his insight into human nature to me is Lewis at his best. He understands humans, and he's thought a lot about God. In, uh, in 1960, in one of his reprints, he wrote an introduction, and he had a great line. People often ask him, how do you know so much about temptation and spiritual formation? And I'll just read you his quote. <clears throat> he, Lewis says, 
Some have paid me an undeserved compliment by supposing that my letters, screw tape letters, were the ripe fruit of many years' study in moral and ascetic theology. Ascetic, uh, severe self-discipline, right? They forget. In other words, I know so much about human temptation because I, I studied so much and I went through all this ascetic theology. They forget that there's an equally reliable, though less creditable, in other words, less worthy of praise, but an equally reliable way of learning how temptation works. My heart. He writes, my heart, I need no others. My heart showeth me the wickedness of the ungodly. And there's Lewis not only at his best, but his most self-aware, his humble. He's saying, the reason I know so much about temptation is, I look in the mirror. He's a struggling Christian like everybody else. He knows these temptations firsthand because he's walked through them. And so, here we go. Tonight, we're going to try to look at the preface, letter one. And the idea of tonight is that you can get a little taste of how these studies are going to go. And uh, you'll get a, a feel for how it'll work. And it, you'll be so excited for next week. Or you'll be asking me, how do you find the Roman study with Pastor Scott? <laughs> Either way, uh, you'll, have a great, you'll have a great semester. Uh, did you notice we'll start, just get around somebody with a book. If you, uh, if you have a book, if you want to share, would you be willing to look off your dad? Okay, great. You guys have one book. It's a ration. Okay, use it well. All right, good deal. Actually, Jonathan, would you hold that? Would you be, okay, now give this book back to Jonathan when he's done. All right. Jesus wants us to share. Look at that. Is that okay? I basically commandeered your book without it. Beg, borrow, steal, I said. All right. Uh, you'll notice in the, uh, in the dedication, start in the dedication. Some of you already opened to page one. You missed the dedication. You see who he dedicated it to? Anybody see that? The man he called, the man he called Tollers. Look who it's dedicated to. J.R.R. Tolkien. Anybody? Anybody? What did Tolkien write? There you go. There you go. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, they used to hang out with a couple of others. They had a little literary society. They called themselves the Inklings. They hung out at a pub in Oxford, England called the Eagle and Child. They called it the Burden Baby. <laughs> they had, uh, well, they had friendship. And if you ever read Lewis's uh, Space Trilogy, he gives uh, Tolkien a whole character named Ransom that he bases it on. So uh, that's fun. Then uh, you see the quotes. Do you see the two quotes before the preface? Right before the preface, you should see two quotes. Starts the best way to drive out. Everybody see that? Keep going. Should be in there. Yeah, yeah you got it. Yep, yep, yep. You should see two. Is it after the preface or before? Before. Before? Okay, just before the preface in the books that uh, your version may be different. <clears throat> I want you to note these two quotes. This is something fun. Every time you see it, you can smile knowingly. Um, the first quote is from Martin Luther. Anybody? Martin Luther? You guys got that? Martin Luther, key player in the 1500s in something called the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, right? He writes, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield the text of Scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. It's from, Lewis, uh, from uh, Luther's book, Table Talk. And uh, what's he saying? He's saying, he, Lewis is sort of defending why he wrote a book of satire. And he's like, well, you know, the best way to re resist the devil is scripture. But a book like this is mocking scripture because Satan is so filled with self-righteousness and arrogance that he can't bear the fact that some, you know, some punk Christian in England is, is just undercutting him and mocking him with a book like this. The next quote says the exact same thing. The devil, the proud spirit. You got some old English there, but you get it. The devil, the proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. Here's what's great. Look who said that. Thomas More. You may not know more. Same 
Thomas More. Do you know who he's famous for? A man for all seasons. He got in a little trouble with Henry VIII. But what he's most famous for, he was a Catholic who fought Luther and the Reformation at every turn. He was completely anti-Luther. Only Lewis. Two guys saying the exact same thing, mortal enemies. He puts them forever on the same page as he opens the book. I just think that's so delicious. Because Lewis is one of his great things was unity among Christians, right? And Christians are always, they seem like we're so good at, at fighting one another. And he's, here he is putting a Catholic uh, and, a, and, a, and a, you know, Sir Thomas More, St. Thomas More, the, the Catholic Church uh, uh, canonized him against Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, right there on the same page forever. Lewis, you know, uh, the title of his book, Mere Christianity. It seemed like his whole life he, he you know, he had a, uh, he had this uh, desire to see Christians come together. He broke uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's heart. Tolkien's Catholic, you know. And, uh, he was, and, the, and the fact that Lewis became an Anglican, he was like, no, no, you know. Um, and yet they remained those best of friends. And so I, I don't know if this is a nod to, to Tolkien, who he dedicated it to, or if it's just some good old-fashioned Christian unity. But now, every time you look at those two quotes, I hope it makes you smile, like it ma makes me smile, to see these two Christians coming together, saying the same thing. All right, flip the page there to the preface. This is part of the book. Um, and, you know, he, he begins the... the I don't know, what do they call it in, in acting when you break the fourth wall? He's kind of like, like letter to the reader here before he jumps into letter one. I have no intention of explaining how the correspondence which I now offer to the public fell into my hands. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Ah, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Uh, everybody understand that quote? Uh, the problem with, with, uh, with screw tape letters is by now I've underlined so many that the whole thing's underlined. And so it's like, well, this is a quote to remember, and this is a quote to remember. But one of the most famous in the whole book is that right there. There's two equal and opposite errors to which you can fall when it comes to devils. And that's really true. Throughout uh, time and culture, I think the enemy has used both ends of this uh, pendulum. Sometimes it's to the devil's advantage to get people to not believe that there's any such thing as Satan, don't believe there's, there's no such thing as the devil, and get people to fall into that. Lewis says that's an error. And I would agree with it. That's an error. To believe, no, there's no such thing as Satan. There's no, there's no demonic force out there. What's the opposite end of that error? What's the other end of that spectrum? People who, who and, and I've, I've met folks like this in, in my years of ministry, they are so into like demonic uh, and studying about demons and demonology. And, 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 and there's an angel and a demon under every bush, you know. And these are people that are like, oh, pastor, the spirit of hunger is upon me. I was like, I think you just need a Snickers. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a demon. You know, right? So, that, so Lewis says there's two equal but opposite errors. It would be interesting, interesting for you to think of. Those of you who are note takers, you might make a little question for yourself to ponder later with your family. Most Christians, we... We're going to be more likely to fall into one of the errors or the other. It'd be interesting to ask which one is more likely for you. And when he says magician, he just means someone who is too concerned with uh, demonology. He doesn't mean like David Copperfield. Now, the sort of script which used in this book can be very easily obtained by anyone who has once learned the knack. But ill-disposed or excitable people who might make a bad use of it shall not learn it from me. In other words, don't, you know, don't blame me if people go off the rails with this. Readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. Ooh, that's good. Not everything that Screwtape says should be assumed to be true, even from his own angle. That, guys, we're gonna, you might want to underline that. We're going to come back to that over and over again. 
Even screw tape will say stuff like, well, you know, God can't do this or this. Ah, remember the devil's a liar. So he's going to say things in this book that he believes are true, but he himself is deceptive and full of lies. I've made no attempt to identify any of the human beings mentioned in the letters, but I think it very unlikely that the portraits say of Father Spike or of the patient's mother are wholly just. There's wishful thinking in hell as well as on earth. In other words, uh, Screwtape's going to say some really nasty things about that pastor or about the mother, and they're probably not as bad as that. But again, Screwtape is wishful thinking. In conclusion, I ought to add that no effort has been made to clear up the chronology of the letters. Number 17 appears to have been composed before rationing became serious. Here he's talking about the history of the war in which the letters you know, are imagined. But in general, the diabolical method of dating seems to bear no relation to terrestrial time, and I've not attempted to reproduce it. The history of the European war, except insofar as it happens now and then to impinge upon the spiritual condition of one human being, was obviously of no interest to screw tape. So he's just saying, hey, look, for you historians that read this later and go, well, you messed up the chronology of the, of the war. Uh, th don't worry about that. All right. That's the preface. I have left myself 11 minutes. Oh, boy. I knew that would happen. Well, I had a lot of introductory comments. All right. This is what it will feel like to walk through a letter together. <clears throat> Let's do it. Our first letter. Aren't you excited? <laughs> Letter number one. My dear Wormwood, I know what you say in guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend, but aren't you being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you suppose argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. See, they still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as a result of a chain of reasoning. But with the weekly press and other such weapons, we've largely altered that. How quaint, by the way, is weekly press. Now it's 24-7 constant news cycle on your phone at all times. So how much easier is it even now? Okay, back to the text. Your man's been accustomed, ever since he was a boy, to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. See, he doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false. No, but as, quote, academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. See, jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Uh, everybody understand when I say materialism, he's talking about the philosophy that the material world is all there is. He doesn't mean like um, you spend too much on cars and clothes and vacations. Though that could be part of it. He means like somebody who's atheistic, right? The material world's all there is. No, so, so don't waste your time trying to make him think materialism is true. Make him think it's, you know, strong or stark or courageous. You know, that it's the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. Whew, and we're off and running. Now, how good is that? How, seriously, how is that not a word for 2023? You see what he's saying. He's saying, look, uh, argument is uh, 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 no longer like, like truth has become for people, thanks in large part to people like Screwtape, truth has become relative for folks. And so gone are the days when it's like, well, let's hash this out and have a good dialogue about this. And whichever one can make the more compelling argument, 
I will be swayed by that argument and the strength of truth. Where have you ever seen? Can any of you think in the last 10 years watching a political show on the news where someone was, they're just going at it, and someone put the mic down and said, you know what? I have nothing to say. My opponent has made a good, compelling argument, and now I'm persuaded to his point of view. If that happens, run for the hills because the apocalypse is upon it, right? They're just screaming at each other, right? And gone are the days where you even like thoughtfully proceed through the arguments. Instead, it's, is this argument going to be on? I can think of perfect examples where Christians believe things, and it's not whether or not it's true. It's, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Well, that's an old-fashioned thing to believe. Well, that's, that's hurtful for people. Cancel. Cancel. Right? Forget whether or not it's true. Truth is apparently like, like there's, and, more, and screw tape says, yeah, that's the strategy. Jargon. Um, uh, and the way you do that is continue the, 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 the media of beefing that up. Uh, in his Oxford History of English Literature, Lewis said once of Renaissance humanists, the Renaissance, so Lewis was like a medieval scholar, and the Renaissance scholars, they didn't like the medieval stuff. And he wrote this great line. He wrote, they jeer, but they do not refute. In other words, they make fun of it. They say it's stupid or old-fashioned, but they don't actually at any point make any like real truth argument as to why it's good or bad. They jeer, but they do not refute. Isn't that a perfect description of our country's division in politics right now? I think it is. There's all these ad hominem attacks. You know, They, they jeer, but they don't refute. Anyway. Um, uh, let's see. I made a note. I made a note to myself. You're probably ranting. Move on. Okay. Good. 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 See the trouble about argument. And when he says argument, he means argument proper. He doesn't mean yelling at each other. He means the the formal making of premises and conclusions. If you do that, it moves the whole struggle to the enemy's own ground. See, he can argue too. Whereas in the really practical propaganda of the kind I'm suggesting. He has been shown for centuries to be greatly the inferior of our father below. You see what he's saying there. Um, Satan uses lies and propaganda, but God, through the miracle of restraint, he refuses to do that. And so they think they have the advantage. By the very act of arguing, you awake, in the, you awake the patient's reason. And once it's awake, who can foresee the result? It's a great line. If people start thinking about what's true, who knows? They might become Christians. Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor... You will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life and don't let him ask what he means by quote real. Circle the word stream if you're willing to take notes in your book. Let's come back to that word. Remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit. Never having been a human. Oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies. What does he mean by that? The fact that this, uh, the fact that this uh, 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 human creature, this patient, has never, he's not pure spirit. Never having been a human, you don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. In other words, he's saying, Wormwood, you've never been a human. Oh, that advantage of the enemies. What's he talking about? Yeah, somebody whispered, he's talking, he's, he's talking about Bethlehem. He's talking about Jesus. That's exactly right. He's talking about the incarnation. He's saying, here, you know, the fact that God became man. It's incredible. Like, the demons even know that. Well, you don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. 
And then he tells this great story. Okay, I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. As Christians, we would use the language, he, this person had fallen under conviction. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. Isn't that great? If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. Oh, but I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested it was just about time he had some lunch. The part that he controlled most was the man's appetite. And so here he is about to save 20 years worth of work by saying, you know what? You're hungry. Well, the enemy presumably made the counter suggestion. I don't know exactly what he said. You, you know how one can never quite overhear what he says to him. That this is more important than lunch. It thinks, at least I think that must have been his line. Because when I said, quite. In fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added, much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I'd gotten him an unalterable conviction that, whew, whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of, quote, real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He knew he'd had a narrow escape, and in later years was fond of talking about that inarticulate sense for actuality, which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. <laughs> He's now safe in our Father's house. You begin to see the point. Thanks to processes, which we set at work in them centuries ago, they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. So keep pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. Above all, do not attempt to use science. I mean the real sciences as a defense against Christianity. That's worth exploring. They will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see. There have been sad cases among the modern physicists. In fact, if you want to make a note, go check out um, Francis Collins. He just stepped down after how many years? Uh, Three presidents and 12 years as the director of the National Institute of Health. He's also a strong Christian. So our nation's top scientist loves the Lord with all his heart and talks about how he sees God and all this beauty. And true science, he says, is no enemy of religion. True science explores this is my father's world. And I want to know all about it. Anyway, just make a note of that. We'll touch it and move on. The point is, don't use real science. If you must dabble in science, keep him on economics and sociology. Uh, forgive me, all economics and sociology majors. Sorry, the shot's fired. Don't let him get away from that invaluable, quote, real life. But the best of all is to let him read no science, but to give him a grand general idea that, you know, he knows it all already. And everything he happens to pick up in casual talk and reading is, quote, the results of modern investigation. Do remember you're there to fuddle him. From the way some of you young fiends talk, anyone would suppose it was our job to teach. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtail. I want you to go back in my two minutes. I want you to go back and look at that word stream. <laughs> what he's saying is the best way, the best way to get this man's soul is not to come up with good arguments against theism. It's just a stream. Keep the stream going. Keep the stream going. Don't try to come up with reasons why you shouldn't believe in God. You should be an atheist. Don't do that. Because when you start thinking logically and you think about God, you get in big trouble. Instead, just keep him in the stream. Now let me ask you, what do you call it 
when you sit down and binge watch two days worth of Netflix, what is literally what they call that in 2023? You're doing what with that product? You're my chance is expensive. I won't really drop it. How do you do that? How did Lewis do that? In 1941, he said the key. Don't actually argue with them. Just keep them so well-fed and amused. Keep them streaming. And you'll have them saved in eternity. The whole book's like that, guys. It's, you read it, and you, that's the stuff you put down, and you go, that's it. That's what we're up against. Go to an atheist and be like, wow, you're an atheist? How'd you do it? How did you over... How did you overcome the objection that it's more logical that something comes from something, not something comes from nothing? That is an incredible intellectual obstacle that every atheist has to overcome before they reach the conclusion that something could come from nothing. How were you brought to that? Tell me. And they'll tell you, we talking about, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 well, then how did you get to that? I don't, I, don't, I don't know, I just know. I, and then it begins the jargon and the tearing down. But there's never actually any layers of built argument. Instead, just keep everybody streaming. All the way to perdition. First John chapter 2, uh, the apostle writes, Little children, do not love the world or the things in the world. For the things in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but from the world. Here it is. And the world and all its lusts are passing away. But the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. Don't buy into the stream. Uh, 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 2 Corinthians 4.18, maybe even better, says the same thing. Therefore, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. The bus, the number 73 bus, the newspaper man. That, we always say, well, that's real life. This must be real because I can see it. Whoa, 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 whoa. The, the, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. That bus is eventually going to be gone. That, that, that newspaper boy is going to be a corpse one day. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, the Bible says, but what is unseen is eternal. Dallas Willard opens his book. Uh, forget which one. Dallas Willard opens a book by asking, when was it ever proven that things that we can see are more real than things we cannot see? Like, when, was that, when did that happen, in science or in history? And the answer is, it hasn't, and it never will. The Bible says, what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So here you've got screw tape this week, going to try to keep you guys and me in the stream, when instead, obviously, our spiritual formation would be to do the opposite and to fix our eyes on the Lord. Well, that, that's what we're going to try to do. So I read a little bit, I ramble, rant, teach, talk a little bit, and then we'll read a little bit more. Next week, we're going to try to do two letters. But I won't have any introductory comments, I won't have any preface to cover, so we're going to try to get two. And then uh, the, the real uh, tough one is going to be uh, January 25th, and we'll try to do three. And they're like three of my favorite letters. So just bring a sandwich on that night, and maybe a tent, and we'll just have a great time. I'm going to pray for you, and close us. How, how are we? Are we going to get, oh, 656, we're going to be okay, right? Yeah, all right. Jackie, you, listen, is there anything you want to say? And these, I, I, you know, I, it's so sweet. And you were like. No, I'm good, thanks. All right, all right. So like, don't ever put anybody on the spot. Like, sorry, I didn't mean to. Well, let me. Well, you, 
Jackie, would you would you mind praying for you? That'd be good. Would you mind leading us in a closing prayer? Thank you so much. Yes, Good night, everybody. Thank you so much.